Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong podcast. We're coming at you from Merlot University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we're talking all about relapse refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. This will likely be the first of a couple of episodes on this topic, just because it's such a big topic to cover. But hopefully it'll provide you all a good framework for our ongoing conversation about how we take care of these patients after they progress to their primary treatment modalities we discussed previously. I'm excited about this episode. We're going to really focus on CAR T-cell therapy and autologous transplant in this episode, give everybody a historical perspective and really understand how to practically treat these patients in 2023. Yeah, I'm looking forward to applying some of those fundamentals of CAR-T that we talked about in our last episode. All right, guys. Well, without further ado, let's roll that show. So listeners, we are recording on a very cool kind of fun day here at the Fellow One Call. Not only is it Dan Hausrat's birthday today, and he decided to spend it with us recording this episode for you all. It was also Vivek's birthday just a few days ago. So, you know, wherever you are, give him a little round of applause and and wish him a happy birthday. I do want to say that I told Dan we should not record today, but for some reason he still wanted to do it. So, so I'm just, I'm just saying that it's, it's a couple of days after my birthday, but Dan, you shouldn't be doing this. I like you guys. What can I say? And, you know, Dan, what are your birthday plans for tonight? Hopefully this isn't the highlight of your day. Well, uh, it's, it's one of the highlights. I'll say that. I already got to enjoy a bone marrow biopsy a little earlier today. Not done on me, but done by me. And that was fun. And then probably uh, pop a bottle of Lambrusco, have some, uh, have some chicken. And then uh, I think probably going to eat some bunt cakes tonight. I got those as a gift uh, earlier this week. That sounds awesome. Only Dan would reply with that, that he did a bone marrow biopsy, is going to eat chicken, and then we'll have some butt cakes if some person got him. It's classic Dan. It's classic <laughs> Dan, but Dan loves the science, and so that's why he's here, and, and I'm true. excited to be recording another episode with you all. But thank you guys for celebrating your birthday, and uh, immediately after your birthday, in Vivek's case, we are thrilled to have you all here with us today. So listeners, in our last episode, we talked all about the treatment of advanced stage disease for DLBCL, and hopefully your patients that you treat with these modalities will never progress and need anything further down the line. But of course, every now and then we will have a patient that does progress beyond that initial therapy. And so it's important that we have that conversation about what we do in this situation. And I will say, and and we'll break this down for you, but Even in my time in fellowship, I feel like there's already been a a lot of advances in this area. And so I'm excited to kind of break into the the cutting edge information on treatment of this disease. And this is really Vivek's forte. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to learning from his expertise in this field. So with that said, Vivek, do you want to kick us off with the case? I I think you said you had seen someone with a situation like this not too long ago. Yeah. So we have a 43 year old male with high grade B cell lymphoma who completed six cycles of dose-adjusted REPOC. At initial diagnosis, he had a PET-CT with diffuse adenopathy above and below the diaphragm and a diffusely enlarged pancreatic mass with infiltration extending into the mesentery and omentum. After three cycles of therapy, he had an interim PET scan 
that showed a partial response with a Doville 4 on his pancreatic mass and his other sites of disease had decreased in size with less uptake. He now presents six weeks after his last cycle of chemotherapy, and he had an end-of-treatment PET which showed a 1.5-centimeter new subcarinal lymph node, redemonstration of a large peripancreatic nodal mass, and new foci of uptake in the distal left 6th and 7th ribs that were all a score of 5 on a 5-point scale. Remember this idea of 5-point scale and Deauville score literally the same thing. It's just Deauville was met in Deauville, France. The 5-point scale was met in Lugano, Switzerland. So he underwent a biopsy because, again, if we have a score of 4 or higher, we worry about persistent disease. And that biopsy showed high-grade B-cell lymphoma consistent with primary refractory disease. Otherwise, he feels pretty well. He's got some rib and abdominal pain, but he honestly was planning to go back to work full-time prior to this. So in the last episode, we discussed the fundamentals of CAR-T therapy and autotransplant, so check that out prior to this episode if any of this gets confusing. But how should we approach these patients with relapsed and or refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma? For these patients, the first thing that we really need to do is try and assess their fitness, their, their level of physical functionality. And I realize that this is a pretty nebulous concept, like how do we really gauge someone's physical fitness? But really the only curative options in this setting are CAR-T or high-dose chemotherapy followed by autologous stem cell rescue. So in order to do well with these kinds of intensive treatments, patients need to be fit enough to be able to care for themselves and have adequate organ function without things like severe heart failure, severe pulmonary disease, and things like that. You wouldn't necessarily want to consider somebody whose ejection fraction was below 50% as completely ruled out, but we're talking you know, severe heart failure with, with severe functional limitations. That's something where you wouldn't want to necessarily put someone through such a intensive form of therapy. We also don't really think of chronological age in an absolute sense as precluding patients from curative therapies like CAR-T, but we still need to take things into account like their organ function and functional status. That, that's what's really more important. After determining a patient's level of fitness, we need to determine how long it took for them to relapse. That sort of helps inform our, our treatment algorithm and our decision-making at that point. Uh, there are two buckets, largely speaking, when it comes to timeline for relapse. And we consider primary refractory, so folks who never really saw adequate response, or relapse within 12 months as being sort of in the same bucket. And then the other bucket is people who relapsed after 12 months. So if they relapse beyond 12 months after finishing their therapy, that's the that's the second bucket. That's the less aggressive bucket. Awesome. So so really what you're highlighting here is that there's a pretty extensive review of the patient's history when we're evaluating these patients for one of two potential options for treatment in relapse and refractory disease. And that is going to come down to what their physical fitness is that includes their medical comorbidities and also whether or not, uh, or rather the timeline that they had their relapse or refractory disease, you know, less than 12 months or greater than 12 months. And as we discussed last week in primary refractory disease, at the end of treatment, we get that PET scan. And relapse within 12 months, as we said last time, also has a worse prognosis. So Vivek, I think in your case, you had mentioned to us when we were discussing this case that the patient did end up having a biopsy, as you had alluded to, because of this persistently avid region. And so therefore, we would classify this patient as having primary refractory disease. So I'm really curious, what is your approach to caring for these patients given these findings? 
Yeah. So the short answer here is that, and and to this will, we're going to focus on the, today's episode is those who are in this bucket, primary refractory disease or relapse within twelve months of their induction therapy. Primary refractory meaning did not get a complete response. And the short answer is refer them for CAR T. That is the standard of care now is to refer them for CAR T therapy as soon as possible. And really what we're going to have to do, though, is give them some form of therapy to temporize them before the CAR T is manufactured and the logistics we talked about last week actually go through. But before we get into the details of that management, we need a historical perspective on how we treated patients. So historically, and we're talking starting, let's say, in the 1980s, what we knew was that patients who had relapsed lymphoma had overall very poor prognosis. And what we found out was that platinum-based salvage chemotherapy regimens worked the best. So that's what we know of in lymphoma, platinum-based salvage chemotherapy regimens work the best. In the late 1980s, the thought was, well, what if we gave somebody a platinum-based chemotherapy regimen, and if they were sensitive, meaning if they responded after a couple of cycles, should we chase that with even more chemotherapy, higher-intensity chemotherapy, followed by stem cell rescue? And that was really the idea for the first pivotal trial for these patients, which was called the Parma trial. I think about Parma because it's like Parmesan, and this was done in Parma, Italy. And what they did in this trial was they enrolled 200 patients with relapsed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, and all of these patients got two cycles of salvaged platinum-based chemotherapy. And this trial, they used a regimen called DHAP, dexamethasone high-dose cytarabine for the HA, and the P was platinum agent, which was cisplatin. So dexamethasone, cytarabine, and cisplatin. After two cycles, if the patients had a PR or better, then they went on to be randomized to either more DHAP with radiation or really high-dose conditioning chemotherapy followed by autologous stem cell rescue. And the bottom line is that in that trial is that, number one, only 50% of patients actually responded to platinum salvage chemotherapy. So you have 50% of patients who aren't even eligible to proceed to autologous stem cell transplant. And that's an important concept for everybody to understand. Our platinum salvage options doesn't guarantee somebody proceeding to transplant. Of the 50% of patients who actually got a response and then were randomized, there was an overall survival benefit by about 20 percentage points total for those who got an autologous transplant as opposed to more DHAP and radiation. So that really became the standard of care was autotransplant. There was a follow-up study in the rituximab era, because remember, this was like 80s to 90s. That, that study was published in 1995. Then we developed rituximab, which we've talked about in our previous episodes. And that study was called the CORAL study. It's called Collaborative Trial and Relapsed Aggressive Lymphoma. I guess CORAL just sounded like a cool nickname. I don't know where the O comes from still. It doesn't make any sense to me. But unlike Parma, this had a little bit more granular detail on the patients who had primary refractory disease. And you'll understand now why this was an early signal to seeing the importance of that. So in this study, they randomized patients to two different platinum-based salvage options. So at this point, we had that DHAP, but now we said, well, another option was actually something called R-ICE or RICE, and that was rituximab, iphosphamide, carboplatin, and etoposide. And this was a different regimen with less renal toxicity. So the idea was, hey, can we do this rice regimen? Maybe it also has better response rates. In phase two trials, there was a thought that rice had better response rates than DHAP. And in, in both of these situations, it's R-ICE and R-DHAP because we're in the rituximab era. 
So 400 patients were included. They randomized between two of these platinum salvage chemo options, all got three cycles, and they proceeded then with autologous stem cell transplant with the high-dose chemotherapy with beam conditioning. We talked about that last week uh, with the drugs that are in that. It's four different drugs for that conditioning regimen. And what we found was the overall response rate was 60% in both arms, so no different, and the CR rate was about 20 to 30%. When you looked at those who were primary refractory or relapsed early within that 12-month period, the overall response rate was lower at about 40%, and there was fewer CRs, maybe about 20%. So you're having the response rates. You're getting worse response rates when you have this primary refractory disease. And the conclusion here was essentially... RICE and RDHAP were both appropriate salvage platinum-based chemotherapy options that we can give to patients prior to autologous transplant, and we knew that RICE had less renal toxicity, so that's why you see it being generally preferred in these patients who relapse. All right, so we started off using these platinum-based chemotherapy regimens with primary refractory or relapse disease to try and identify those who are still chemosensitive. And if they were chemosensitive, then we took them to the high-dose chemotherapy with beam conditioning and, and then stem cell rescue. But it seems like what you're saying is that we're really only getting, at best, 60% response. And it's those patients, that 60%, that would then be eligible for autologous transplant. And also, those salvage regimens all require inpatient stays and inpatient hospitalization. Did they study any other regimens that might not have these issues? So historically, you may see other regimens, including ESHAP or DHAX or MINE, and none of these had the same level of evidence as RICE that Vivek just mentioned or DHAP. And we know that RICE is less toxic with regards to renal toxicity, which is really why we ended up using that so much more often. The bottom line is the recipe and the secret sauce to coming up with a combination that works well in these patients includes a platinum agent, anti-metabolites, topoisomerase inhibitors, and an alkylator. In, in regards to that, then, the other regimens that you may see other than rice in the literature include RGDP and are also RGEMOX. So there was a phase three randomized controlled trial that randomized patients to RGDP versus RDHEP, and it found that it was non-inferior with less toxicity and improved quality of life as it's given as an outpatient. And the overall response rate in this study was around 43% in both arms, which is lower than the 60% seen in the CORALS trial and more likely representative of what we were seeing in real life in the clinic. RGEMOX does not have a phase three randomized data to support it and mainly has been used in the salvage setting in those who are not candidates for autologous transplants. Overall response rates in, in studies looking into RGEMOX range anywhere from 40 to 60%, and the majority of these patients had relapsed greater than 12 months after induction, so more favorable patient population. This is a reasonable option, though, to consider in patients who may be a little bit more frail, but personally, we would not recommend using this over RGDP or RICE based on the lack of phase three evidence. So really, historically speaking, our best options for fit patients headed for potential transplant if they were chemosensitive are this R-ICE or R-GDP. Um, but how do we figure out that those with the primary refractory or early relapse had a worse prognosis compared to other patients? There's a really important pooled analysis that really every 
physician who treats lymphoma should should look at this and know about it. It was called the Scholar One analysis. And what this was was they pulled together patient level data from two randomized trials and two academic databases of co- observational cohorts. And they focused on those who had refractory disease. And this could either be primary refractory, relapsed within a year of therapy, or those who relapsed greater than 12 months after their initial induction therapy got another line of therapy, and within two cycles of that were refractory. So we're just looking at the patients who were refractory very close to their last chemotherapy. And what we found was the overall response rate to all of these salvage platinum-based options was about 26% with a CR rate of a dismal 10%. The two-year overall survival was about 20%. So these are our highest-risk patients by far, and this really sets the stage for our CAR-T discussion that we're going to have now. All right, so let's get back to our case. This patient has primary refractory disease, which has an overall poor prognosis, long-term survival around 20% based on that Scholar 1 data you just mentioned. We discussed the patients in the primary refractory or that relapse within 12 months will proceed to CAR-T therapy with either Axicel or Lisacel. How did we get to this strategy? What were the trials that proved this was the way to go? So we talked about the mechanism and the logistics of CAR-T therapy in our last episode. And this is a very complicated topic when we talk about the story of of in this patient population, there are three main CAR-T products, but only two are approved for the primary refractory or relapse within 12 months. The three products we have are one, Axicaptogene Silylucil, or Axicel. The brand name is Yescarta that you'll hear people throw around. That has a co-simulatory domain of CD28. Again, we talked about this last week. More ICANs, more CRS, more toxicities associated with it, but honestly has the best survival data that we're going to get into. Another product is called Tisagen Leclusol, also known as Tisa Cell, and you'll see that also being called Kimraya. And this product is a 41BB co-simulatory domain, ends up having less responses than AxiCell. And the third product, which is approved now, is called Lysacell or Lysocaptogene Marilusol. The brand name is called Brianzi, and this also has a 41BB co-stimulatory domain, but it's a different product, different manufacturing than the T-cell was, and it happened to work well in this patient population. So how did this start? Well, first, the idea was from the AxiCell investigators was let's choose the highest risk population. Those who we know have a 20% long-term survival, very poor responses to platinum-based chemotherapy, the primary refractory disease patients, those who relapse within a year. And they enrolled patients in a phase two trial called ZUMA1, Z-U-M-A-1. And in that trial, they had impressive response rates. So for this historically very poor outcomes, they had response rates around 70 to 80% with a CR rate of about 50%. We're talking going from 23% CR rates of 10%. Now we're upping that CR rate to 50%. And we have long-term follow-up from that study that showed an durable overall survival benefit showing a curative fraction in about 40% of patients. So that was huge. We enriched the population for the sickest and found that, wow, this CAR-T product works extremely well. For the other two products, for Tisacel, that was looked at in a single-arm phase two trial. But in this trial, 
they included both those who had primary refractory and early relapse as well as later relapse. So it also included sort of less high-risk patients. And there were lower response rates in that study. We're looking at talking about 50%-ish overall response rates, about a 40% complete response rate. So not quite as good as AxiCell, but there were less toxicities. And then for that third drug, that Lysacell, that was really tested in a phase one trial called the Transcend trial, and that had similar response rates to AxiCell at 70 to 80%, 50% CR rate kind of range, so showed really promising activity. So now we had, okay, we've tested these in single-arm studies. That AxiCell drug, that Yaskarta drug, worked really, really well, enriching for the sickest population. So then there were three phase three trials. And they all had the same eligibility criteria and very similar design. So the eligibility criteria were patients who were primary refractory or relapsed within a year, those who had the worst prognosis based on Scholar 1, who aren't really going to get the response to have chemosensitive disease to go on to autotransplant. And patients were randomized to either CAR-T therapy or standard of care, which is platinum-based salvage followed by autologous transplant. So there's three different trials, one for AxiCell one for T-cell, one for Lysacell. And the bottom line is the one for AxiCell is called Zuma7, and it has now demonstrated an overall survival benefit and has become the standard of care option for many of our patients. The trial for T-cell did not beat standard of care autologous transplant, so it is not an option for our patients. And Lysacell was recently published. It's called the TRANSFORM trial. And there was a PFS benefit, but the overall survival is still maturing. And so that's why that's an option as well. And the key difference is, and I just told you, well, AxiCell has just longer follow-up. It has an overall survival benefit. But it did have higher rates of cytokine release syndrome and ICANS. The Lysacell had less of those rates. So which do we use? We still don't know. We know that AxiCell has overall survival. We're not sure about the Lysacell yet. So I feel like based on the description you gave us, Vivek, our patient would be a perfect candidate to proceed with either Axacel or Lysacel, given the approval in this setting and the lack of benefit of the Tisacel in the phase three trials that you just mentioned. I find it really interesting that, you know, the, the Tisacel product didn't have that same benefit that we've seen with the other two products, despite the fact that the mechanism of CAR-T amongst the products is relatively similar. And so I guess my big question as a follow-up to all this is, did the trials differ in their design? Is, does that explain why we're seeing this discrepancy or is there something else there? It's a great question. And I think part of it is the product and part of it is design and part of it is that we have no idea. And to go through that, let's talk about the design of these trials. So we talked about the inclusion criteria. We're enrolling the highest risk patients. All the patients got leukapheresis, got their cells collected, and then were randomized at that point. The idea behind that was for the standard of care arm, if they progressed, if they didn't respond to their salvage chemotherapy, or if they progressed after autologous transplant, they should be allowed to get CAR-T on the back end because that was the approval given those single arm studies that I had mentioned first. So everybody got leukapheresis and then were randomized. And those were the big similarities between these trials. Here's the difference, the key difference. Patients in that AxiCell trial, that Zuma 7 trial, they got leukapheresis and they didn't get any chemotherapy after that. And what that means is after somebody gets their cells collected, that leukapheresis and it's off for manufacturing that we talked about in our last episode, you can give patients something called bridging chemotherapy, give them therapy to bridge them to their CAR-T after leukapheresis. In that study, they didn't get that. 
they were had an option for steroid monotherapy to temporize things. And the reason for that, the median time from getting leukapherese to getting that CAR-T in their system was about 14 days, very quick turnaround. So they didn't need it. We know lymphoma works fast, but they had fast manufacturing times. So that was the only trial that didn't have bridging chemotherapy. In the TRANSFORM and Belinda trials, so TRANSFORM was for Lysacel, Belinda was for Tisacel. In both of those trials, bridging chemotherapy with a platinum-based regimen was permitted. And we all know now why we're using platinum-based regimens is from all this historical data, right? So that was permitted because they knew that, hey, it could, it's going to take longer than two weeks for us to get that product back to you. So if you need to temporize, use some platinum-based chemotherapy. And the biggest thing here, again, we know that lysosel is approved, the TRANSFORM trial. The median time from leukapheresis to getting that CAR-T product was about 30-ish days. For the Belinda trial for Tisacel, it was 50 days. So you could see that's a huge discrepancy. So is this the Tisacel product, that Kim Raya product, not being as good and as potent? Or is it that it took so long that these patients had progressed and they had they maybe had a different disease biology? Are we, look, are we comparing apples to apples here? So those are the key differences. And the other thing is we have no idea right now what's the optimal bridging chemotherapy and does bridging chemotherapy affect CAR-T efficacy? We're not sure. We know that in, in retrospective data that the use of bridging therapy is often associated with, with worse PFS outcomes and, and potentially OS outcomes. But it's unclear if that's just because that's a sicker patient needing to get bridging chemotherapy or if the bridging is doing something to the CAR-T. So the time of manufacturing was important and the use of bridging therapy, the Zuma 7 trial, I'd say, is the cleanest, right? It says if you can get the CAR-T back fast, which isn't at all what happens in real life, right? We have all these logistical barriers. But if that's the case, we know for sure that this has an overall survival benefit. So she, we should work towards making our logistics similar to that trial. That's really fascinating to to think about. And I think it highlights just, you know, how many different pieces of the puzzle are required to get a patient these these adequate therapies. And I, I think unless you're doing this all the time, I think it's difficult to visualize exactly what that may look like. So in, in our case, our, our patient's been referred for CAR-T evaluation and was thankfully approved for Axacel. And so as you highlighted, one of the logistical barriers is insurance authorization, which as we all know, probably, or at least probably do know, uh, can take several weeks. And so he needs some therapy in the meantime, and he can't undergo leukophoresis without this approval. So as we've talked about already in this episode, we talked about um, platinum salvage options for this for this patient with our rice and our gdp but what else can we use for this patient this is a great question and this is really the biggest unanswered question and unmet need that i see in large cell lymphoma right now because we have these referrals that for patients that are coming into a car t center to get curative intent therapy and we have to do something in the meantime and in the trials they didn't have to do that they all got leukophoresis up front and we don't have good data in this space to saying, what's the best option here? Should we continue with the platinum-based options? And the reason why I say that, with CAR-T, you don't necessarily need a response like you did to have chemosensitive disease followed by autotransplant, right? You don't need that. You need it just stable disease or better. So do we need that intensive of approach of a platinum salvage regimen? And that's a big question. So 
I would say that often we reach for that platinum salvage-based options, but other options, radiation therapy is, I think, underutilized and extremely reasonable. If there are a few spots that you can radiate to buy yourself some time, it's a very reasonable thing to do. And the second thing is, we sometimes we talked about polatuzumab-bidotin, that antibody drug conjugate to CD79B in our previous advanced large cell lymphoma episode. If you combine that with rituximab, we have good data that that has pretty good response rates and efficacy. You may hear about polatuzumab combined with bendamustine and rituximab. We don't like to do that because the bendamustine can prevent adequate lymphocyte collection for manufacturing your CAR-T. So polatuzumab with rituximab is an option. And some of these you know, phase two data we're saying, eh, maybe about a 40 to 60%-ish response rate. But again, that data is not looking at the sickest primary refractory relapse within 12 months, which is the population we're dealing with. So that's why we we really reach for that salvage platinum-based option for most of our patients. And the second thing that we don't want to forget about is considering radiation therapy as we're getting this approval process, getting leukapheresis, getting through the logistics, which aren't as fast as what happened in those clinical trials. All right. So in light of all that, after discussing with our patient, we did start him on therapy with RGDP, and he was able to get through two cycles before getting insurance authorization, insurance approval. He then underwent his leukapheresis, and fortunately, because he achieved a PR with RGDP, we did not need to offer any bridging therapy. His product has now been finished, it's manufactured, and he's about to start lymphodepleting chemotherapy. So what does the process look like from here? So I'm going to go through this very briefly. Essentially, what happens is we have something called day zero, which is when the patient gets their CAR-T. And what we do before that is start at day minus five, five days before day zero, where we give them lymphodepleting chemotherapy. Basically, we're giving them daily chemotherapy for three days to prime their body to allow those CAR T cells to work. Let's, let's suppress their current lymphocytes and allow those CAR T cells to take over, expand, and do their job. And that's done with fludarabine and cyclophosphamide. So that's what you'll, you'll hear, a flu sigh, and that's lymphodepleting chemotherapy. It's just daily chemotherapy for three days. Then the patient gets two days off, and then now they're at day zero. So day minus five, day minus four, day minus three, they're getting this chemotherapy to prime their body to accept the CAR-Ts and allow the CAR-T cells to do what they do. They get the infusion at day zero, and then there's logistics that we're not going to talk about in this episode about monitoring for CAR-T and things like that that we'll talk about in a separate episode. But that's essentially what happens. And then you're probably asking, well, when do they get their next assessment? It's at day 30. So one month after they get their CAR-T, that's their first assessment. They don't have to have a complete response by then. They can have a partial response on PET scan because these CAR-T cells are still doing their thing. They're still killing the tumor. There's inflammation happening. So that's okay. So we do that check, and then we do another check at three months. So a one-month check, a three-month check, and those are your big time points. Most of the patients, if the CAR-T isn't going to work per se, and they're going to relapse through it or they're not going to respond to it, that's going to happen within the first six months. Relapses after six months happen, but they're not as common. The first six-month period is where you'll see that biggest drop-off. And so logistically, that's really what we're looking like for these patients with CAR-T. After they get their CAR-T, let's say now they're 
30 days, 60 days out, they'll get monthly checks. And the biggest thing everyone needs to know about is B-cell aplasia and the need for giving IVIG for low IgG levels. So we check their IgG levels. If it's less than 400, we supplement them with IVIG. And so that, that's important for these patients with CAR-T. And for the purposes of clarity, when you're saying check-ins at like the 30-day mark and such, what are you referencing there? Is it lab work, bone marrow biopsy, PET scans? What are you actually surveilling in these patients? At the 30-day mark, you're getting that PET scan, but you're getting lab work monthly for a while. And the most important part of that lab work is the IgG level, because we want to be giving these patients IVIG to prevent infection, which is a long-term complication that we worry about. Long-term cytopenias can also happen in, in a subset of our patients, so that's why labs are also important. It's not quite as common as having B-cell aplasia with low IgG levels. And the other important thing is we know that B-cell aplasia is associated with better outcomes in ALL. We don't necessarily have that exact direct link in large cell lymphoma, but so if a patient comes in, they don't have complete B-cell aplasia, that's okay. They can have a good complete response and have a durable cure. Got it. Okay. So so it's mainly blood work that's going to be driving a, a lot of this. Is there any role for repeat imaging along the way, you know, beyond like at the six month mark or the year, or are we using mainly symptoms as a reason to repeat imaging? That's a great question. So we do a 30-day imaging, a three-month imaging, so about day 90, day 100. And then based on that imaging, we'll choose whether we want to do imaging at six months or skip that and always do imaging at one year. So let's say that they're still at, you're at that three month mark and you're still a little bit concerned, you know, there, there's a response, but there's still a little bit of FTG uptake. You might add that six month mark in, but oftentimes we just do day 30, day 90, 100 ish, about three months. And then day 365 as, as our, as our cut points for imaging and looking for relapsed disease. Awesome. That sounds great. Guys, any final thoughts? I thought that was a really comprehensive review of a, an otherwise sort of difficult topic to digest. Listeners, definitely check out the show notes for a synopsis of all this information, links as we've been doing, as well as just a review on you know all, all these products. I will say just in preparing for past ITEs and stuff, these question writers love knowing the difference between the co-stimulatory agent on these different options and the names all sound kind of the same. So they come up with questions where they ask you the approval for one over the other. So just kind of go through these topics a little bit and familiarize yourself with the products. It will help you out on board exams, even if you never end up doing this in real life. But guys, as I was saying, any other final thoughts that you guys have about this topic? No, I think I think we covered a lot of great stuff. What it really comes down to is if you have a patient with primary refractory disease and they seem like they're fit enough to undergo something like CAR T therapy, that's that's what we would recommend. And you you get them there using platinum-based chemotherapies, either our ICE or our GDP are our top two choices based on the strength of evidence and the sort of optimizing side effects. And there can be a significant delay related to insurance approval and just the process of making these cells. So bridging therapy of some kind, either with platinum chemotherapy or some of these newer combinations like R-Pola are, are going to be important. Once you are approved and you've gone through the leukapheresis process to collect cells, the product gets created, they have to go undergo some sort of lymphodepleting conditioning therapy, and then they get infused their cells. After that, we just have to check in 
frequently for the first few months, make sure that things seem to be going in the right direction and watch them closely after that. That was great. And the last thing that, that I'm going to say is that when we think about these patients, just remember why CAR-T is so great. We used to only be able to give patients a curative option with auto transplant if they responded to platinum chemotherapy, and that often happened less than half the time. So we are really changing the game, groundbreaking therapies here. In the next episode, we'll talk about what do we do for those who relapse after a year, and how do bite therapies come to play in this, and what about those who can't get CAR-T, or what if they progress after CAR-T? So stay tuned for that in our next episode. I'm really excited to share that one with our listeners for sure. That's all we got for today. So until next time, we'll see you all later. Happy birthday, Dan. See you later. Thanks. Peace.